Praise the Lord. <laughs> oh, come on. You can give me something more than that. Good morning, everybody. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. It's all right. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. We ought to be making a fuss over Jesus all of the time, shouldn't we? Absolutely, we should. Gay, hey, guess what? This is, um, this is actually the first Sunday of Advent. And um, let me see, let me get my stuff together here. And so we want to enter into that. I haven't done, I don't think, in terms of the traditional Advent thing, the four um, you know, consecutive weeks, I don't think that, I don't remember doing it any particular time in the many years we've been doing church here. And uh, so we're probably overdue. Let's do it up. Actually, the, um, this week is the first week of the church's liturgical calendar. In other words, it all begins today from the church point of view, from the biblical point of view. Everything begins today with this first Sunday of Advent. But it won't begin if my computer, there is my computer, Okay. So um, on the way into that, and because we're in the Christmas season, and also because over the last few weeks we have failed to get into or, or um, to bring to your attention a, a passage of Scripture to memorize for the month, and I think we've been hammering you pretty hard, right? We're learning like Romans 5, 1 through 7, and 1 through 8, and it, I don't know, maybe it's a little much. So, we, I'm, so we're, I'm going to lighten up on you a little bit this morning, okay? We'll lighten up on you. For, uh, for the month of December. <clears throat> and here's what we actually have. Let me see, do I have my... Oh, that's fun. That helps. What's that? No, I'm looking for the, the little clicker. As, did you take that, Sandy? <clears throat> ah, here it is. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, you have saved my life, brought me out of darkness. Okay, so here's our passage for, <clears throat> for this month. Let's quote it together. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9-6. <clears throat> All right, Lord, as we meet here this morning, I uh, just want to pray over this word that you have put in my heart. I pray that we'll be able to communicate the, the depth and the profoundness of this Advent season and what it means to the world, what it has brought, what you have brought to the absolutely broken and, and empty and hollow and superficial world. You have brought true depth, true light, true peace. So we thank and praise you, Lord God. May we be able this morning to dwell on these matters and may they reach down into the very inmost part of our being to touch us and to transform us, to change us, to give us a radically different point of view about this world that we're passing through at the moment and <clears throat> the hope that we have past it in Christ. So, Lord God, we pray for your, your anointing and your, your blessing on our message this morning. In Jesus' name, and everybody said? Amen. Amen. Okay, now, <clears throat> let me uh, do a little object lesson here. <clears throat> if you have your Bible, 
Um, you could turn it along with me, but it's not necessary. And I'm going to go to the very last, last phrase, the last chapter in the Bible, the last word in the Old Testament. So I'm in Malachi 4. <clears throat> I just want to read this, the very end of what, uh, the words that, that, come, that, that form the conclusion of the Old Testament. <clears throat> Malachi writing, and it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. End of story. Okay, kind of a pretty solemn note that the Old Testament ends on. Now, we flip the page. Then we have this. This little blank page, your Bible probably has it too. I was going to use another Bible that I often use, but it had like 25 billion pages of notes and scriptures and stuff, so it didn't work. But most, ba most Bibles will have this space in between. And then <clears throat> we come to the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew opens up like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, <clears throat> in... In, uh, this, in, the, in your Bible, <clears throat> do you know what this page represents, this little blank page here? Probably many, if not most of you, do know that this blank page here represents 400 years. 400 years where there has been no word from the Lord, where there has been nothing fresh, nothing new, no prophet has arisen, nobody has arisen, to uh, present some, some, new, um, some new word from God, some new, um, some new aspect of his plan or his program. That empty page represents 400 years. Now, if I were to stand here for 40 seconds, silently, we'd all get real nervous. What's, what's going on here? This is creepy. Right? If, that, if, if I were to stand here for four minutes, you'd wonder what was wrong with me. God waited for 400 years from the time of Malachi. And, and, what, and you can see that as God is coming to the conclusion, actually the book of Malachi um, is kind of like a divorce proceeding. It's like God is on one end of a long, 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 long table and humanity is on the other end. And God is saying, look, you've done this. And they say, what are you talking about? We don't even know what you're talking about. The typical example is the whole tithing thing. Look, you robbed me of tithes. We didn't rob you of tithes. We don't know what you're talking about. And God goes through a whole bunch of things that they are doing that they shouldn't be doing and they don't even really seem to know that they're doing anything wrong. They just seem to be kind of oblivious to it. And so this very end of the Old Testament comes as a rather solemn and harsh word. Lest I come and strive, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the parents to the children, hearts of children to the parents, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Hard word. But what God really did, rather than curse the world, God brought the light. And so when we turn that page and those 400 years are over, but that was a long, long time, 400 years. Um, <clears throat> but there was still, in God's plan, a remnant. There was still 
his own people, a group of his own people, there's always a remnant. I want you to know something this morning. You and I are the remnant. You and I are the people of God in this world. In other words, there, there's, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of posers, okay? There's a lot of people who think they're Christians, but then there are people who have been born of the Spirit and know the Lord personally and intimately. We are the remnant in this world. We are the people of God in this world. We are the people that God has spoken to, communi- communicated to, in order to bring us out of that darkness that this world is, is under, that this world lives under, and into his marvelous light. The title today for my message is Advent. Biblically understood, and today, as I said, is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent <clears throat> means the arrival of an important or significant or a notable person, thing, or event. It's like the advent of the Industrial Revolution. The advent of the Industrial Revolution brought great changes to the modern world, okay? The coming of, the arrival of, the advent of television has changed our society forever, right? So this word advent talks about the arrival of an important or significant person or a thing or or an event. The word advent comes from the Latin adventus, which means coming, and it means a period of expectation Preparation for the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ at Christmas. It also has, in, in terms of the church's liturgical picture, it also has kind of a forward look to the second coming of Jesus Christ, to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ into this world. So rather than, than fulfill his dire warning, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse, God chose to send us the light. <clears throat> Advent but, but it's important that we understand that Advent is, although it is a time of preparation um, for, the, for the whole celebration of Christmas, it really is not about preparations, and it's not about gifts, and it's not about parties, and it's not about get-togethers, and it's not about trees, and it's not about celebration. Advent is not about any of those things. Advent, biblically understood, is about something different. Advent, biblically understood, begins with a longing. It begins with a sense of absence. It begins in the darkness. It begins in the silence of God. Advent, biblically understood, is about having a sense of the sin of this world, of the condemnation of this world, of the guilt of this world that we all share in, that we all have a guilty conscience over, because we all know that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we, we, we um, Advent, biblically, under, biblically understood, is about having a sense of the inevitable wrath of God to this world, the fear of God and the wrath of God. <clears throat> it has to be about us facing the reality of this fallen, broken world. In Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah penned this. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So this idea of God's wrath, the reality of it might strike you as 
odd and different than what you perhaps thought the wrath of God is. We would tend to think, oh, the wrath of God is like when a gigantic hurricane or comes through and kills a ton of people, and, or the wrath of God is when there's some kind of a fire or an earthquake or some kind of thing, and God is angry now, and God is punishing mankind. But the, the truth about the wrath of God, it is, a, it is something very, very different from that. The wrath of God is God's absence, The wrath of God is when God is no longer around. And this is exactly what humanity wants if we look at Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth have set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us cast away their cords and, and throw away their chains from us. He that sits in the heaven will laugh. The Lord will hold all of this silliness in derision. Humanity wants desperately to get rid of God, and, when, and, and the wrath of God is, is when God chooses to leave. It's when God chooses and says, all right, you're on your own. The wrath of God is God leaving humanity to its own ends. God's wrath poured out becomes man's sense of hopelessness, purposelessness, and the, to- the total absence of goodness, justice, righteousness, love, mercy, compassion. It is ultimate nihilism. It is the ultimate statement that life has absolutely no meaning. That's what happens when God vacates the premises. There is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no joy. What Joel was saying this morning was absolutely appropriate because we can have joy today and we and a real joy like Peter writes about. You now have joy inexpressible, a joy unspeakable and full of glory. And joy is not this silly laughter thing. Joy is this deep thing, isn't it? It's, it's, not, a, it's not a big laugh. It is this deep, settled conviction, confidence, that all is well. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness. Hey, this is, this is the forecast for everybody in this room. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That brings joy, right? I don't go running around the room laughing about it, but it gives me joy. That's what brings peace. I know that I'm loved by the God who gave his only begotten son on my behalf that I could be delivered out of the realm of darkness, out of the realm of meaninglessness, out of the realm of nihilism, and into the kingdom of his great dear son. Hallelujah! Glory to God. So God's wrath is the darkness of humanity left to itself. If you read the book of Romans in the first chapter, it says, and because they didn't want to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to their own thoughts to do those things which are not convenient. He goes on to describe a whole number of sinful behaviors there at the conclusion of of, uh, Romans chapter one. But God's wrath then is the darkness of humanity left to itself. What an awful thought. Humanity left to itself. So Advent, to begin, does not dismiss or doesn't look away from this issue of God's wrath. Advent emerges directly out of it. Christmas is diminished. Christmas is stripped of its glorious substance if if we're unwilling to take a harsh, fierce, 
look at the reality of the fallenness <clears throat> of this world. T.S. Eliot said, humankind cannot bear too much reality. That's the truth, right? I like to escape reality. How about you? How many honest people do we have here? Love to bail out. Lo- I love, love to escape reality. I don't, I don't want to take too much. This, the reality of this world will overwhelm you. Right? The despair, the, the true despair, the brokenness of this world is overwhelming. And when you get I, some, <clears throat> you walk around, I don't know if this probably happens to you, walk around the mall, see all these people, and think, how many of these people are not saved? How many of these people will be lost should Jesus, right? And you just look at people and faces all around, and that, that just trickles into your own family and your own neighbors and your own people and your job and all. What about these people, right? And, and just the very thought that these people are lost, it's just overwhelming. And you wonder, well, what, and what you can do is whatever you can do. What you can't do is nothing. Amen? What we can't do is nothing. We must do what we, what we can do. <clears throat> but it doesn't take too long until you just feel overwhelmed by the tragedy of this present world. So Advent, biblically understood, begins in darkness. There are 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, 400 years without a word from the Lord, 400 years of how long, O Lord? People live their entire lives saying, how long, O Lord? And they died. And another generation came up and said, how long, O Lord? And they went to their graves. And this this went on and on and on until we get to Matthew chapter one. By the way, have you ever noticed how God begins all of his works in darkness? Right, if we go to Genesis chapter one, right, the the whole setup is that the darkness comes first and then out of the darkness comes the light. For it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, right? And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, he brooded over the waters, and God spoke, and he said, let there be light, and there was light, and God said it was good, and the evening and the morning were the first day. So this whole idea that everything started in darkness, the idea behind it, the metaphor behind it, the picture behind it, is that darkness that light will triumph over darkness, that darkness will not triumph over light. Amen. That is the whole, and and, and God's entire program is set up on that basis. That every Jewish day begins the night before. Right, every, the, 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 uh, the day for all Jewish people starts on the evening of the night before. The Sabbath starts on Friday night and goes all the way through Friday night into Saturday morning. So it is always this picture of the darkness that then gradually is turning into light. And so as we get to this, and so it's important to understand that as the basis for our whole understanding of the, uh, of the, of the Christmas season. Darkness, does darkness extinguish light? Does light extinguish darkness? As long as mankind has been alive, there has been within us collectively a a, a consciousness, an awareness of our sin and of our guilt and of the chaos and craziness of this world and of the inevitable wrath of God. There is in humanity a heart's cry that is really captured in that wonderful Christmas song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive. Israel, that mourns 
in lonely exile here. And even when it goes to the, when it goes to the rejoice, it goes to it in a minor key. Rejoice, rejoice, but it's minor. Oh, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Right, so there's this, even that song has that feeling, that minor feeling, that kind of solemn, burdened, heavy kind of feeling to it, as opposed to the major chord, which would just be kind of celebratory and glorious. And so if, if there's, something like, there's something of this that is built into our very, our very psychology, our very understanding of life. And I, now, I'm not looking to be Pastor Downer here this morning and just wreck everybody's morning and wreck everybody's advent. But if we don't get a sense of the real meaning of the coming of Christ in the world, we are likely to cheapen Christmas. We are likely to trivialize, trivialize Christmas just like the world does. And that's why it's important that we understand the larger picture, the complete picture. Our Christmas will be petty and trite, just like the world around us um, that doesn't understand it. So we have to face it. Here's the backdrop, and here's the big story. This is, I never thought of using this verse, it's so common, I never thought about having this as kind of a text for Christmas, but this really spells Christmas out, for sure. Uh, John chapter three. Oh, I didn't show that one? Oops, Okay. John chapter three is probably a a passage that you know pretty well, but let's go through it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Another thing too, when we do that that, uh, creed in the morning, and it says of Jesus, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, that is such a powerful, that's such an important statement. You and I are made. So in that essence, we are the creations of God, but we are not begotten of God. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, the only Son, his own life born into, a human, born into human flesh. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But then we have, now normally, that's, there's plenty there to cause our hearts to get happy and rejoice. But then it goes on to say some things that are very, very important in relationship to that first passage we just read. He who believes in him, that being Christ, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So God so loved the world, God has done so much, God has made it possible that we would be redeemed, called back. He has given the best thing that he could possibly have given. He has given his son. Jesus Christ has given his life as an offering, as a sacrifice for our sins so that they are gone, they are off the table, they are no more, they are not what God is thinking about because I'm gonna tell you what God is thinking about for you and for your life. God is thinking about the great things that could be accomplished through you and through your life if he can get your full attention. Amen. Amen. If he can get our full cooperation, if he can get us in full yieldedness mode, God can accomplish, God can do great things through anybody's life, through anybody's life. He's no respecter of persons, and whatever, um, what is is the old phrase, um, where God guides, he provides, and whoever God calls, he equips. And so, God is thinking about the the reality 
that he can accomplish in your life. God is not thinking about your sins. God is not concerned about your sins. You should be. Right? That's, that's important. Not that they will keep you out of heaven or they're going to somehow mess up your relationship with God. No, they're just going to undermine his plan for your life. That's what sin is going to do. And so if I don't get a grip on it, if I don't come to terms with it, if I don't see it for what it is and say, I've got to, I gotta, I gotta stay out of this. It's not about what God is seeing. It's about like, what am I allowing into the house here? What am I allowing into my mind? What am I allowing into my life? And to what extent will that under, will undermine or, or destroy or corrupt the very thing that God wants to do with our life? So we should be concerned about our sin. And, and, and that's why kind of we start with this whole thought. So I know that Christmas is, you know, it's a feel-good time, and we certainly will be doing plenty of that. There's time for festivities and celebrations and enjoyment. We don't want to diminish any of that. But as Christians, especially at Christmas, because Christmas is Christian, amen? Think of that. I mean, Christmas is ours. It's not theirs. It is ours. But we have an obligation to show what it really means, and not just to get caught up in all of the hype and you know all the festivities and all the stuff. We have to correctly engage with the story that leads us into the deepest longings of the human heart. And so as we come into Advent, that's kind of the mindset that we're wanting to establish. Yes, the joy is coming, Christ is coming, the glory is coming, but it, for the moment, as we enter into it this season, as we embark upon this season, Advent, biblically understood, begins with darkness and despair and emptiness and a longing. We'll never be able to grasp what God has done for us until we have a personal and honest sense of the hopelessness that is in this world. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. So there is a genuine drama in the story that begins to unfold. It is portrayed by some of the characters that are presented to us as the story is brought to us. Luke opens up his gospel by telling the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest. Elizabeth is his wife. They're old people at this point. They have, they're probably 20, 30, 40 years married. They don't have any children. they don't have, they, they, they've lived their whole life, they're old, they are childless, they've, they've lived their whole life without the hope of, act, of even having a family, of even having children, of having any descendants. They have a lifetime of faithfulness, a lifetime of prayer, a lifetime of devotion, a lifetime of service in the temple. When we meet up with Zechariah, where is he? He's serving in the temple. And there, all of a sudden, an angel breaks in and says, hey, bud, you're about to have a child. And it blows him away, but he, he can't quite, he can't get a handle on it. He can't quite believe it. And so the angel says, well, I'll tell you what, just to help you just kind of get a, get a hold of this thing, you'll be struck dumb until the first thing you're ever, you're going to say is the name of your son. You're going to call his name John. And so Zachariah, he, he can't talk about it. He's just amazed by the whole thing. But it's kind of this story of this older couple that were old and childless and, and, and kind of hopeless in this world, and all of a sudden they are, they are told, you're going to have a child. That is the correct orientation for Advent. When we enter the story of Jesus, whoop, um, and then when we enter and get into the story of Jesus, there are 
You know, there are a lot of wonderful things about the story, that pl- places that we love to visit, like the Annunciation to Mary, or the uh, shepherds, right? Shepherds are always great. Uh, the angels who appear on the Bethlehem hillside, the wise men coming, all these like these wonderful parts of the Christmas story. But there's some dark parts to the Christmas story as well. There's a very, there's a very, uh, the, the story is replete with difficulties. There's a backstory here. And the backstory behind the birth of Jesus is, is a story about subjugation. It's a story about political oppression and political manipulation. It's a story about abuse of power. It's a story about the murder of innocent children. There are some seriously dark elements in this story that stand behind it. And it is also about the fact that as soon as they know that he's come, they want him dead. Herod hears the word from from the Magi, and the first thing he thinks is, I gotta get rid of this thing. We're gonna deal with this. So from his first coming, they want him dead. From the moment he arrives, they want to kill him. When he preaches his first public sermon, the Bible says that they took him over to a cliff and they were ready just to throw him off the cliff. This is when he goes in and he opens up the scroll to Isaiah chapter 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, to preach deliverance to the captives. You know that whole passage. And it is Jesus making this announcement in a very humble fashion of what he has come to be or what he has come to do and who he has come to be. And immediately the reaction is, get rid of this guy. They want him dead. <clears throat> so this is as real as it gets, but, but we're not gonna get into all that darkness here today, but just to kind of feel the story in, it, in its depth, in its fullness. And then alongside of all this, there is a unexpected revelation. There's this frightening appearance of angels. We know that they must have been frightened because the first thing the angel says is, fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior is Christ the Lord. And this is how you'll know that what I'm telling you is true. Right? And so this, this, this kind of scary entourage of angels, that's ha- this is all happening at the same time. Even the birth of Christ, I'm assuming the birth of Christ happens in the dark. I don't think he's born at any time when the sun is out. I think it must have been the night, and probably it is the exact moment when these angels show up on this Bethlehem hillside, and they begin to sing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men of goodwill. And probably, as it's my, you know, I have no, no way to know this for sure, but I'm assuming that this is right at the very moment. Jesus comes into this world, but he comes into this world in its darkness. He comes into this world in its night. So, what's what's important with all this is that Advent, oh, I'm sorry, I have a a, a scripture here from from Isaiah chapter nine. Um, And it, it, it speaks of the reality of something that happened in the seventh century BC, but it really speaks to all human beings because it says the people who walked in darkness, that's me have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Advent, biblically understood, reorders our perspective to this fallen world. By by reordering our perspective, I mean there will always in this world be darkness. 
And all darkness will continue to do its dark thing. Darkness does not get converted. Darkness does not get changed. We get converted. We get changed. We see things differently. You've got to see that. That it is the work that God does inside of us. He's not taking all the darkness out. He's just taking the darkness out of you. And, and, turning, and, and allowing you to see the truth. But the truth is kind of an ugly and dark picture about the hopelessness of this present world. There will always be darkness, but darkness do, and darkness does not get converted. But we get converted. We see things different. Darkness will always be darkness. It will always do its dark thing. But it says, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John chapter one, verse five. The darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness could not grasp it. The darkness could not overcome it. So into this dark world, broken world. Actually, it it even goes, I I find that I use the word broken a lot, and a lot of other people do um, in, in describing this world. But this world is more than broken. This world has gone over to the dark side. In other words, this world is evil. It's more than broken. That's really important. This world is evil. It has a hostility toward its creator. And that, therefore, it has no future. It has no hope. It will never find the hope or, of salvation or, or any permanent change. or any, Nothing is ever going to fix this except Jesus Christ himself. And so it's into that, it's into that picture that, uh, that we, we begin to Look at it, look at this story. The darkness um, did not comprehend it. The darkness of this world could not grasp it. It's just the darkness of this world was, was illumined by the coming of Christ. We understand this. Here's a passage from John chapter one. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. So we're not looking to launch a campaign of doom and gloom so that we have have a terrible Christmas this year, but we just simply want to step above this world to see this world in its sinfulness, in its lostness, in its rebellion, in its pain, and in its futility. Right? The, world, the world, as I said, is more than broken. It is evil. The world tolerates, condones, promotes evil. What is the uh, old expression by Alexander Pope? Sin is a monster of such awful mien that to be hated needs but to be seen. But seen too oft, familiar with face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. Right? This world condones evil. It promotes evil. There's deep evil in this present world. And we're seeing more of it because in my opinion, as, as, this, as we go through this season of time, we have, we have to this point given God the, the, the doorway out and, and, and so we're seeing all of the ugliness and we're seeing falsehood creep in so that you know things like this whole transgender thing, right? Where, where people are being required to say, trans women are women, no. And I don't mean to just jump on that particular thing, but I'm I'm citing it because it's just such an example of the acceptance of falsehood and the demand that everyone else accept the falsehood. In other words, so it's not enough just to be wrong. I gotta make you wrong too. 
And I got right, and everybody's got to be wrong, and we all have to t- we all have to say that we believe something that we know is manifestly not true. And that this this is this is what happens when when God is not in our world. So, unless we're willing to take a, a real hard look, unless we're willing to become Advent people and, and learn to take on whatever is going on around us and see it in a new way, this, this world of tragedy and all of its problems, um, we will put Christmas, we'll just simply make Christmas a celebration of escapism. We'll, we will diminish Christ's coming. We'll fail to see this as the only hope for mankind. This world has an authoritative grip on the now, okay? It, it, it has an authoritative grip on what it says is relevant and important. It pushes it right in your face, which is why scripture says don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good, excellent, perfect will of God. This world wants to put the authoritative grip of what's relevant and important right in your face. Advent brings another perspective. Advent opens up God's perspective. It it tells us that whatever the world is looking at is really not that important because God's grip on this world is far greater, far higher, far, far stronger. God's purpose and program and plan in this world is triumphant. That's what the Advent season tells us. Advent tells us that God has a grip on the eternal. The world has the authoritarian grip on the now. Advent tells us that God has a grip on the eternal. Advent declares that eternal triumphs over the now. Advent brings us into a story that says that the Bible has the final word. It is that word that sums all things up in Christ. Our human race, the world as it is, cannot ever possibly expect to find any lasting comfort from within itself. But it must come from somewhere else. And we have this wonderful, incredible story about about a transcendent life breaking in upon us from, from another sphere altogether and coming into our world, and, th- and his coming into this world transforms this dark, broken, ugly, evil world, which was hopeless, and we don't sense that anywhere nearly as much as they would have, because at the time when Christ came, the world was infinitely worse than it is today. We have wonderful lives today. We have all these things that we can play with, toys we can play with, and things that do work for us, and all these amusements that we have. We have a wonderful life today, and it is always my contention that we have a wonderful life simply because the people who started this experiment back in uh, 1776 were followers of Jesus, most of them. We're serious followers of Jesus, and they set up this entire culture and this entire structure to be something that brought honor, that recognized the truth and the truthfulness of the word of God and honored it and enshrined it in the social structure that they created. And so that has created the best, most prosperous, most joyful, the best life that anyone could hope to have on planet Earth. We live in that world. But the people who lived in the world when Jesus came lived in an awful, horrible, brutal world where there was no justice, where there was no peace, where there was no protection. None of the things that we commonly take for granted. So we believe that there was a breaking in into this world from a sphere outside of this world, and that has changed everything. This is a story that overcomes and challenges all these stories that come to us from our news feeds. We realize that the world can't save itself. And we might just want to sit back and say, how the hell with it then? Just judge it, just curse it. Kind of like what we read, it, that sounds like God's about there in the book of Malachi. 
So he goes, in the book of Malachi, he goes, well, you, you did this. Well, we never did that. Now you're doing this, and, and we don't know what you're talking about. And there's, there's just this estrangement between God and his people. And so God, it, see, it would seem at the end of the Old Testament, not that I think that God, you know, is re- shuffling his plan around or things like that, but simply it, it sounds as though God is about, is saying, don't make me come down there. Right? Don't make me come down there, right? Happily, he chose to come down here in the person of his son, our Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. <clears throat> so, so as much as we might just want to say, curse it, judge it, condemn it, rail against it, to identify all the things that are wrong with it, that's not the way God dealt with it. If we're going to be Advent people, we will say, Lord, have mercy on a lost and hopeless world. Darkness and light dwell side by side in this present fallen world. The darkness in this world will grow darker. The light in this world will grow brighter. And at some point in all of this, Jesus will return. But it begins in the darkness. But out of that darkness, the light triumphs, just in the same way that every day begins in darkness, but ultimately the daytime rolls around. What's important for us to recognize <clears throat> that we are the people of the light. As I said earlier on, we are the remnant. We are the people that God is counting on to take the truth of what Christmas is into the world that has no clue, so it's just kind of another excuse for another party, but to take the reality of Jesus and, and into the lives of people that we know and love and to bring that, bring the truth of who Jesus Christ is because many people that we know are still lost in that sinful cycle, that broken cycle, that helpless cycle, that hopeless cycle, and they can't seem to find the way out. And there is no way out except through the way the way himself, the way and the truth and the life. So as we come into the season, it is just so important that we reorient ourselves, that we realize that God looked at the darkness of this world, but he wasn't overcome by it. He already had a plan. He already, God had that plan from Genesis chapter three. God's made it clear, look at, I'm, uh, you will bring forth the seed and that seed will, you, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. God's plan was in play right from the get-go and God knew exactly what was gonna happen. But it is just, I believe, as we start this whole season off, let's take a few moments just to remember the saving work that God did into this lost world, this, this, this hopelessly lost and evil and broken world, and Christ comes into this world and provides redemption and pro- provides forgiveness and provides salvation and provides peace and provides joy and provides meaning and provides everything we need, says Peter, for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Hallelujah. Let's go over that, that John 3. Because this is, this, is, this is so important, and, and maybe this is like the magic moment for somebody in this room. Maybe you haven't really ever, you're, you're not a Christian. You know about what a Christian is, but you yourself, you're not a Christian. You have not ever made a decision to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And so you're kind of listening to all this. But this passage is speaking something that is so powerful. For God so loved the world. God so loved you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that if you would believe him, you would not perish, but you would find and have and possess everlasting life. <clears throat> for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God is not looking for reasons to condemn you. He has plenty of those. 
<laughs> He's got a list. You know, it's funny because for years, you know, it, it, we might have thought about, you know, for when I first was saved, you know, how in the world would God know everything? Had all the information, all the books are open. All, this, these days, it's all easy to understand, right? Everything's on videotape. Everything is being seen. There's nothing secret anywhere, anywhere anymore, right? And so, um, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather that the world through him might be saved. What God's greatest longing and desire for you is that you would be saved, that you would be rescued by Jesus Christ out of a life of emptiness and aimlessness and foolishness and sinfulness and all kinds of error and come into, to make the transition, to come into that place where by the direction of the Spirit of God, by the example of Jesus our Lord, you can enter into a life that is full of hope, full of joy, full of promise, full of potential. Not that we don't recognize the ugliness of this world, not that we ourselves are not sometimes there, right? I can get ugly, I can get selfish, I can, everything, everything that I see out in the world, it, it happens right here. I understand it, but I also know how to get rid of it. I also know how to get out from underneath it. I know how to live above it. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run, not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Okay, so one more. We'll wrap this up. This is, this is the... This is the thing you really have to take to heart. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's where God is challenging us. In the middle of this broken wreckage of a world, in the midst of sinful rebels all over the place, in comes the light, and if we'll come to the light, the light will begin to shine openly. And yeah, it might show you some things about yourself that you're really not too happy to see, that you really would like to just kind of keep, keep hidden somewhere and out of view, but it's, it's critically important that we deal with God on that level as a starting point, and then God can, because we'll never understand how lost we really are if we don't see how great our departure from God and our sinfulness is, but we see it all around us. We see it in the culture all around us. So, I don't know whether everybody here is a believer or not, but I can tell you that you should be. And I will tell, I will tell you that you must, as Jesus said, you must be born again. And so let's take a moment, bow our heads for a second. And it's just kind of a private mo moment because, I don't know, I, I guess I'm just feeling this. That perhaps there's someone here this morning that you're on the fence. You're afraid of committing yourself as a believer because you think you won't be able to handle it or you won't be able to live up to it or it's not what's happening in your crew or in your, among your friends or it's going to give you a boring life. And wow, is that ever not true? Is that ever not true? What's going to give you a boring life is to, be, to live in rebellion against God. This is the condemnation. That light has come into the world. There's light in this Christmas Advent season. Light has come into the world. 
And so that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, has not comprehended it, has not grasped it, it cannot extinguish it, I think it says in one of the translations. And so my encouragement to you this morning is that you would open your heart to the light, that you would allow that light to come in to your life. Let that light come in and shine, and, and let, let God show you what you look like from his point of view. That's very important. That's the start of the Christmas season when we actually see the great need, the desperate need that we have for forgiveness and reconciliation. So Father God, we pray that your word this morning will reach every heart here. And we pray, oh Lord God, that you will continue to strive and deal with us and draw us in. Is there anybody here this morning that really is just feeling this thing? And I, I would just want you to lift your hands. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not right with God. I'm not right with God. And I, I need to get right with God, but I'm not right with God right now. Raise your hand if that's you. We'll pray for you. I won't embarrass you. Yeah, yeah. I won't embarrass you. Father, I just pray for the hearts that you're speaking to today. And I thank you, Lord, that you are. It says you came into the world to save sinners. You came into this world to save sinners. And so, Lord God, we, uh, we thank you for your salvation and, and the great work that you're doing in us. Continue, we ask, to do this work. And continue, oh Lord, just to strive with us and work with us. And Lord, may we... May we find ourselves drawn further and further and more and more into the center of your will, plan, and purpose for our lives. Pray this now in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.